0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on.
0: Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, It's a a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on.
2: When you're dealing with people, like if an environment is like massively unsafe, psychologically, the worst thing you can do is tell people to stick their necks out because they're going to get their heads chopped off. Yeah.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Thank you for tuning in. It is another glorious week here in California, and to celebrate it, I spent hours and hours and hours in rush hour traffic. And it's actually made me think of uh, Mark Moore. We had him on, he's from the guy from Uber uh, a few weeks ago and he was talking about flying cars. I want them now. There's a lot of time I will never get back. But I think you will find that my long hours going back and forth across the Dumbarton Bridge were worth it. Because this week on the program, we have Laszlo Bock, who for 10 years was the head of people operations at Google. So it was under his watch that the search giant went from something like 6,000 people to more than 60,000, so like a tenfold increase. And yet somehow the company managed to keep its vibe of you know the happy-go-lucky type place that people seem to really like and want to stay. Being Google, of course, pulling that off was largely down to data. Bach was really right at the heart of this whole movement of analyzing what makes people happy at work or just happy generally, and then figuring out how to systematize that at the office. Anyhow, Laszlo left Google about three years ago, and he kind of laid low for a while. And then he popped up last year, raising a boatload of money, something like $40 million to fund his new startup, which is called Humu. And it uses AI to sprinkle a little bit of that Google magic dust into other companies. And some of the ways that they do that and some of the truths that they uncover about people and how they work and how they function is really interesting. And spoiler alert, money isn't the answer. But anyhow, we talk about that and we talk about his time at Google and why things have gone kind of haywire there the last couple of years with employee protests and walkouts and all kinds of unrest and really just the fragility of culture. So if you work in a company, either your own or someone else's, or if you're just a human being, which if you're listening to the podcast, I think you are, I think you'll come away with a few really interesting nuggets. So with that, I will stop talking and hand it over to Laszlo Bach. First of all, thank you for having me here. This feels like a very... Googly-ish room. We're sitting on bean bags. <laughs> That's,
2: um, I, it kind of breaks my heart to hear you say that because we've we've tried really hard not to be too googly in building the company. Um, <laughs> this is the one room with uh, where we put so the company's humu fish theme with yes. coral reef wallpaper. Yeah, so
1: we have we're basically sitting. It's like under the sea, like uh-huh. um, Little Mermaid kind yeah. of vibe.
2: So first, the most important question is. What is a humu? A humu is short for humuhumunukunukuapua'a, which is the Hawaiian state fish. Uh, Of course. And it's also known as the patchwork fish because it looks like a bunch of different pieces of fish sewn together. The etymology of the word actually means to sew or to patch, and that has some resonance for our product and things like that. But my co-founder and I met in Hawaii because he was named one of the best leaders at Google, and that was the award trip. So the name humu... Harkens back to him and how we met, but also we just like that it sounds like human and humor and humble. Right.
1: Got you. We'll get to what you're doing here, but can you just give a sense of your background and what you were doing before
2: Humu? The short version is I came to the U.S. as a refugee. From? From Romania. We snuck out, stayed in a refugee camp in Austria, applied for political asylum in a bunch of places, came to the U.S. How old are you? Living I was two when I came. My memories are as vivid as you would expect. <laughs> um, and then uh, had a bunch of crummy jobs all throughout my career. And started working when I was fourteen. Uh, eventually ended up getting an MBA. Working at McKinsey and Company. Decided to go into human resources. Joined uh, GE to do that. They were
1: not many people decide they're like I want to go into human resources. No. What was the attraction? Because for me, a human re- for most people, for human resources, like the people that like say yes or no to expenses or kind of make your life better is oftentimes worse. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> there, were, there were two reasons. One was sort of more philanthropic and noble, and one was much more pragmatic. The philanthropic or more, more noble one was I realized throughout my career what had really bothered me in every environment, whether I was working as a waiter or a lifeguard or uh, in a white-collar job or in a library, the disconnect between the values leaders talked about and what they actually lived. And I realized if I wanted to have an impact on those issues that I thought were really important, how people were treated, how work happens, I could either do whatever other McKinsey person does is, you know, try to become a CEO, wait 20, 30 years, maybe someday I get that job and then I can have an impact or go into HR where I could have an impact much more quickly. But, you know, I would probably never be a CEO and the impact might be more diffused and so on. Right. Um, The second, though, was and this was a little more calculating. I reasoned that. Within the HR field, there were not a lot of people who had my background and skill set, who'd worked in this wide range of industries, who had the McKinsey training, who had stats, statistics, and operations background, and that I might see problems a little differently than someone who grew up in that field and uh, both move more quickly but have more impact sooner as a result of doing that. Right. And uh, I got lucky in that respect.
1: So how'd you end up at Google?
2: So three years after I started at GE, I got a call to become Google's first head of what we called people operations. And even that
1: uh, title back in the day must was a bit funky, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, Undo- so the title didn't exist. So when I was interviewing with Google... The, this was a year... This was, so I started interviewing in 2005. Google had 3,000 people. By the time I was hired in 2006, Google had 6,000 people. The whole time I was interviewing, the job title was either vice president or senior vice president of human resources. Right. To be honest, in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this job because even if it doesn't work out, because Google is still viewed as kind of risky and speculative, yeah. I'll at least be a head of HR. And then, you know, my career is assured. I got the offer letter finally, and it said head of people operations. And I had the same question. I called up Google. I was like, what does this mean? Why are you doing this? Because I didn't want to lose that safety net I thought I had. Yeah. And the person I was talking to said, Well, we're going to call it people operations because then the engineers will think it's technical and you'll have more (laughs) credibility with them. I remember when I showed up and started working there. Oh, and she, by the way, eventually said, you know, I said, oh, really? That's not really the job I thought it was. And so we had some back and forth, but as a candidate, you can't push back too far. She said, I can change it after six months back to HR if I want. So I started the company. The first time I met this guy named Urs Holtzley, Urs was employee number 10 or 11. He ran infrastructure, still does, which means he's the guy who figured out how to back up the internet. Right. Um, Incredibly smart guy, incredibly technical, and he looked at my title and said, oh, people operations, what a great title. And so I never changed it. And we then instead used it as a way to actually build something a little different, which was we created a field called people analytics, which was all about bringing science and rigor and discipline to how you actually do people management. And how you figure out what's working and what's not
1: right and so by that time was Google already the place that had the beanbags and the free food and the, all the kind of soft stuff for which it became
2: famous yeah they had all the soft stuff the beanbags the lava lamps the free food and all that really came from Larry and Sergey wanting to recreate a university environment what they didn't have was the science behind what works and why and what's a better environment and even today for example it's not 100% science-driven, obviously. So Google still has a lot of open workspaces. The science is. That's actually pretty bad for most people.
1: Is it? Because, like, a newsroom is obviously super open. And, like, part of it I like, but also I feel like it's harder to get stuff done. And it's impossible to have a private conversation. Yeah. Which oftentimes you need, if you, especially as a journalist with certain sources, etc.
2: Yeah, so it's it's actually quite a bad idea to have open seating like that.
1: For those who can't, well, obviously, listeners can't see, but I can, and we're looking out to the HUMO offices, and it is open plan.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> first of all, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> uh, second, for a startup, it's yeah. an economic consideration. Right. And for Google, it was initially, too. Real estate is really expensive in the Bay Area more than ever, and you want to fit in as many people as you can in a given space. We're actually moving to our fourth office in another week. And we're going to start actually having dedicated offices for people. Not for everybody. And it'll usually be teams of people. So yeah. four to six people. Because the issues with open space are everything you describe. Plus, people like to nest. They need, like to settle in. They like to have a little personal space. So
1: where did the whole, whole open plan... Because it feels like that is the go-to now. Yeah, Open plan offices
2: are everywhere. So that's swung back and forth, right? So the corporation's companies like 80 years ago used to have offices. Yeah. And then you'd have workers in a factory. But as white-collar work emerged, they went to open floor plan seating for two reasons. Uh, one, principally to monitor employees so you could see like all the accountants. Like if you, um, was it in Brazil, the movie Brazil? Yeah. Where there's a scene where there's like a sea of like accountants or number crunchers, right? And it's just like awful oppressive. Great film. that is to monitor workers. And then in the, I think 1950s or 60s, it got redefined as a way to make management more accessible. So managers were put there as well as part of it. And then the pendulums kind of swung back and forth as companies kind of, they moved to cubicles because they found that was cheaper and you could pack people in even more tightly. Then the tech companies needed low price per square foot. So yeah. they said, we're gonna do open floor plan, make it feel like like a university. Lots of companies copy that. But the actual science on what drives human performance is, people like to have their own space and a little privacy.
1: So back to Google. So over the hiring period when you were interviewing, which is famously very arduous, mm. the company doubles to 6,000 people. So what, it, what is it that, so you joined in 2006? That's right. So what do you do there? What's your job as a head of people operations?
2: So it was initially all the people stuff, all the like HR stuff you would expect, right? So hiring and firing, paying people, benefits, things like that. When I started, I had all the food programs under me. I think I had massage programs. I might've had the gyms. I think all the people related stuff, except I think the shuttle bus service was- Did you have the lightsaber aerobics? I was- (laughs) (laughs) By the time those were there, that had been moved to the real estate team. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But it was, you know, it was, it was cool. It's a neat environment where two things happen. One is the company gives people enough freedom to kind of like offer their own programs. And, and a lot of these kind of most quirky things start with actual employees saying, hey, I want to lead this class or teach yeah. this class. A couple members of the Black Googler Network organized a, a step ensemble dance team, right? And it was just people just feeling like setting it up and organizing yeah. and it became a real thing. The other was, while a lot of things were free, you need some margin to have like volleyball courts and, you know, the sort of perpetual swimming pools and things like that. Yeah. So there was some of that, but a lot of it was just kind of questioning the fundamental assumption about why not let people just do what they want? Why not trust people to get their work done? Why not trust that if somebody's going to work out at 10 o'clock in the morning, mm. that they're actually going to come back to work and maybe stay longer. Even if they don't stay longer, they're certainly going to be online later and get work done. Why manage... Yeah you know, every single second instead of letting people kind of better integrate work and life. And for a lot of people, that's a better mix.
1: Well, you talk about trust and this just made me think I'm actually reading a book by Susan Wojcicki's mom. She's coming out with this book about how to raise successful people.
2: Is that Esther, right? Esther Esther Wojcicki, yeah. Yeah.
1: And one of the big things is trust and trusting people. And she talks about how the current generations, millennials, have less trust for kind of everything than previous generations. Hmm. Do you see that in... Workplaces And how do you address that?
2: I mean, the external research suggests that's true, right? There's yeah. less... I don't know if there's a generational difference. So no. what I've seen is that there's a societal drop in levels of trust of government, of the church, of sort of these traditional institutions, and a somewhat commensurate rise in the level of trust people put in corporations, of all things. And not corporations generally, but their employers. So people seem to have shifted some of that trust to their employer rather than... To the government. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. But that's like a that's a broad societal wide right. change. If you look across generations, the research I've seen suggests there's actually not really generational differences in terms of how people feel about trust, about autonomy, about speaking up, about all these things that, that are important to them, about how entitled they feel. There aren't generational differences. There's a flaw in the way most of those research studies are done that look across generations. What they do is they take a snapshot and they survey a bunch of like twenty-year-olds and forty year olds and sixty year olds. And they find 60-year-olds have different views than 20-year-olds. When you do a longitudinal study, or when you go back and look at studies of 20-year-olds in the 1970s, yeah. 20-year-olds in the 1970s were just as skeptical and pissed yeah. off and unhappy and fight the power as 20-year-olds now. And now
1: they're Republicans.
2: And you know, <laughs> now we have climate change.
1: So so you you're there at Google for 10 years, but basically... <laughs> Am I correct in saying that you kind of took and you talk about people analytics? So what is that? What is that? And how does that how is that usable
2: now? So Google is an amazing place because we kind of had the freedom to build and experiment a little bit. And uh, people analytics grew out of me making a bet that bringing some science and rigor to how you make human decisions will actually be helpful. Not replacing humans. Never, ever replacing human judgment completely. Because people are just too complicated for a machine Mm -hmm. to figure out. But that a bunch of decisions we make are biased, both in the sense of sort of ethnic bias, racial bias, gender bias, but also in the sense of there's these cognitive heuristics we rely on to navigate the world that cause us to make unfair decisions or bad decisions in the workplace. Like there's something called halo and horns effect, which is if you think somebody's good, you're gonna bias towards them in the future. Like in the real world, that's helpful because past positive interactions with like a a waiter at your restaurant are gonna be predictive of good future interactions with that waiter. In a company, just because you and I had a good meeting last week, that doesn't mean I should give you a bigger raise than somebody who I haven't seen in six months. But psychologically, I will tend to do that absent intervention. What, What I realized was, if you're lucky enough to be an executive at a company, there's not a lot of things you have unilateral control over, but how you allocate resources within your team is one of them. Hmm. So I made this bet that instead of building a leadership and development team, and I'd come from GE where they famously had Crotonville and this huge leadership academy and yeah. invested, I don't know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in training people. We didn't have that when I joined Google. I opted not to build that. And instead build this people analytics team with the same money, the same budget and resources on the so, bat. That so we,
1: turning engineers inward, effectively.
2: Well, not right. just engineers. So what I thought would be the case and turned out to be the case was that um, you need industrial organizational psychologists and engineers and people who actually have some background in the people space. Either because they grew up in HR, or because they have like deep intuition and affinity for human yeah. beings. Like you'd probably be great. Asking smart questions and helping that team be thoughtful, right? You may also be an engineer or IO psychologist. I don't know, but. Absolutely not. um, (laughs) But that combination was really central. And then there were two things we did. One was I asked the team to focus on whatever the biggest problems of the business were. And the single biggest one was recruiting people more efficiently and with a better experience. And then the second was I asked them to focus on things that I thought were interesting. One of the things that I thought was really, to be honest, offensive and off-putting when I joined the company was hiring decisions were based on academic pedigree. Mm. And I remember each week we'd have an offer review where we reviewed two sets of executives. We'd split into two different rooms. One group would review all the product, sales, finance, HR, and so on hires each week. And the other would review the engineering hires. And people would get rejected from that meeting because they had the wrong major or because they went to a school that wasn't perceived to be as selective. I remember one candidate who had graduated from Stanford, made it through the entire Google hiring process, you know, 40 page packet about this person. And she was rejected because one of the other executives said, well, she was a human biology major. Only idiots take human biology. And so the person got rejected. So the second line of research was around things like this, where I thought that was deeply offensive and wrong. But I'd been at the company two months. I didn't have any political power. I didn't have the yeah. context. Even when I pushed back, I'd be questioned about, you know, does he really understand the culture? Does he know what we're looking for? This gentleman named Todd Carlisle, who was, uh, had a PhD in org psych, led a piece of work called Project Cerebro, where we looked at 300 factors that might be predicting performance, and 25 factors that describe performance, yeah. and tried to figure out what actually matters. And it turns out where you went to school didn't matter. Your grades didn't matter. Uh, well, it's funny, we're just
1: before we started recording, we were talking about the college recruiting scandal. Yeah. And that's like, just, I mean, it's a very small glimpse into, but that world of like, well, I went here. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I am on a path and take the right boxes.
2: Well, in the U.S., only a third of people finish college. I'll come to the elite college thing in a second, but mm. you can't tell me that those other two-thirds of people are, on average, less smart or capable. I mean, it's all about... Certainly it's it's hard to get into fancy schools, it's hard to get into college, it's hard to get through college. But the other two-thirds of people aren't idiots. They're good people. They yeah. just don't have opportunity or access or nobody put them on the path. So this over-indexing on university and the status of university is really problematic. Germany, for decades, has had a great system where there's a vocational path.
1: Which it's, starts quite early. I, feel.
2: I think you're tested at age 12 or something yeah. like that, which feels a little early. And I don't know if this is still true. I I looked at it 20 years ago. What was true at the time was that there wasn't any sort of stigma attached to the vocational path. I mean, if you have a doctorate, there's prestige associated with that. But you weren't looked down upon if you were a plumber or what have you. And in the U.S., we don't have that, that egalitarianism. I mean, there's different esteem added to different things. And the craziest thing is, as we're now seeing, right, parents are spending... Hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to get their kids into the school. By the way, either illegally or legally through gifts and things like that. And I've always wondered to what end. Like, okay, so your kid goes to the best schools and is on this glide path, and then ends up working at pick your company, Goldman Sachs, Mm -hmm. or Google, or Facebook, or J.P. Morgan, or Procter and Gamble. Like, each of those companies has a hundred thousand people exactly like that, and you know, half a million alumni or yeah. more exactly like so it, it's not like this special thing and then you're at the bottom of this ladder and you've got a 30 year career grinding your way ahead like it's not clear what people think they're buying yeah by doing that
0: the train is now approaching junction at platform passengers airport please stay on board next stop road station ios helps you control which apps you share your exact location with there's more to iphone
1: So I want to come back to that point, especially around kind of the homogeneity, et cetera. So you create this analytic, uh, analytics tool effectively to find candidates in less likely places. Is that, is that what that, the function yeah. of that is?
2: Yeah, so the whole, idea was, the whole idea behind it was, well, there were a couple. My view was the system that we had in place was unjust and wrong, so let's fix it. In order to make the case to change it, I had to prove that we had a better system. Especially at a place like Google, which is so analytically driven. So I had to prove that we can make our hiring process more efficient by widening the aperture of the people that we're admitting. So -hmm. instead of going to, you know, whatever the number was, 50 or 100 schools, if we go to 3,000, it'll be more efficient because we'll get more candidates more quickly. The trick is when you're running an experiment like this, when you're trying to determine what predicts performance, there's bias in the data because everybody who we... We asked everybody at the company to take a survey about, here's 300 questions, what have you done, yeah. and here's the outcome variables. What We found all these relationships to be true, given that somebody was at Google. And so this guy Todd, again, brilliant PhD statistician, he said, but that's actually not a valid experiment because it's sample bias. You're training on, you're looking at people, given they are already at Google, you're not yeah. actually looking at people rejected. So what I then did, without telling anybody, and with Todd as my partner in crime was we hired 200 people into Google who had been rejected by Google. And how would
1: you get that past the the sensors?
2: So we didn't tell anybody. We we're hiring in those years anywhere between I think the low year it was probably like five or eight thousand people, right? And up to so fifteen or, rounding error, um, yeah. And There were a couple job types where we were hiring thousands of people. And so Mm. you would interview somebody, and they wouldn't end up on your team. So entry-level software engineer. You interview in January. You start in June or May or April on somebody else's team. Nobody ever sees that person. So we take people who were interviewed and rejected and who scored high on this diagnostic because we put it on the website, and people would just take it as part of the hiring process. And if they scored high enough, we would just hire them despite being rejected. And then the hard part was we waited a year. Because you actually have to see them perform over time. Yeah, and then we went back and did the analysis about how's their performance compare to people through the traditional process, and do they look the same or different? And they look different, wider range of schools, more diverse population, and their performance I remember, it was a 41- point rating scale, so you know 1.0, 1.1, 1.2. And their performance was something like 0. .01 better than the people who were hired through the traditional means. Right. And it was a statistically significant but not actually meaningful difference, right? Like it mattered statistically, but 0.01 difference in performance doesn't yeah. matter. What it let us go then do though, was go back to Eric and the leadership team and say like, look, first of all, let me apologize. I hired 200 people I shouldn't have. They're actually a little better. Can we change our hiring bar? Or not the hiring bar, but can we widen the aperture? The criteria or yeah. Be less elitist and biased, and therefore have many, many more people to hire and make the company a better place. And they said, sure. But that whole thing was a three-year process. Right, right. To that point around
1: diversity and homogeneity, obviously Google's still struggling mightily with those. I mean, the diversity report there is is a kind of a joke almost when you look at it. I mean, it's just male, white, and Asian.
2: Yeah, I think across the tech company. The only time there was significant movement mm. um, was Intel... I want to say like 2013 or 2012, something like that. They tied their management bonuses to increasing the volume of people they hired who were diverse. Oh, really? But what was interesting was their rate of hiring, and they put this out there publicly. They said, our rate of hiring has improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. We're hiring you know, so many more people who are happen to be black or Latinx or what have you. But their representation didn't change because people do what you pay them to do, and they pay people to hire more people. They didn't change the internal environment. So, so people left. People left at a greater rate than before. Right. I do think it's a solvable problem. While I was there, we made some progress at Google. We were far from, from yeah. solving it. But I will say, like, my current company, which is a fraction of Google's size, but we're about 20 to 25% black and Latinx. We're 78% non-white and non-male. Mm. We're 55% female. It's very possible in the tech industry to build a company that is representationally diverse, it just takes work and you have to commit to it. Yeah. And there's a bunch of things you have to do, but it is possible. It's harder when, you already, when you're already 10 or 20,000 yeah. people and start from that base. But it starts with actually like making some hard choices about, do you want to hire more slowly in favor of building a diverse population? Because otherwise, 9 out of 10 people who come across your, your resume database are going to be white or Asian in this industry.
1: So, Humu, as, so now you're helping people put in systems like this. And I would be curious to see, from your experience, because I I don't know who your clients are, but if there's a genuine interest, or is it more of a box ticking, like, yeah, we need to be more diverse, because our diversity report's coming out next year, and we don't want to look like assholes.
2: Huh. It ranges. and uh, But we've never met anybody who's skeptical about yeah. diversity and inclusion. Because it's,
1: it is proven, right, that the the more diverse a team, the kind of the better results. Well, so the... It,
2: so Is that a bit hackneyed, or... Well, no. So we looked at this in my old job. Wouldn't it be beautiful if you could say unambiguously more diverse teams are, you know, and therefore everyone should have more diverse teams. The academic research on that is actually pretty mixed. So Mm. there's some work that says it helps slightly. There's some that say it hurts. There's a bunch that's inconclusive. Most of the work done is either studies of college students just taking surveys and doing fake projects, right? Like, you know, come spend an afternoon building Lego projects. Did the more diverse team do better? So it doesn't really translate to the real world. And the corporate studies are heavy on correlation, not causal relationships. So there's a lot of work on uh, diversity of boards. And, you know, the top line is boards with more female representation do better. But it's not clear what's the cause and what's the effect. Right. You know, then there's this interesting corollary where, once boards focus on diversity, they tend to only get one or two of that kind of person and then stop. So you'll have a board of like nine people with two women and it's incredibly rare to have three because their commitment only goes as far as like kind of the PR. Right. So what we saw though, we tried to replicate some of this at Google and figure out what actually, do diverse teams matter? In the first instance, what we saw was that more diversity on a team did not drive performance, which was a real bummer to find. Yeah. Um, we later did a piece of work called Project Aristotle, which was about uh, team effectiveness. And along the way, one of the things we saw was that when teams are high in psychological safety, then you absolutely have an unambiguous, strong, positive benefit from diversity.
1: Psychological safety being I can say something, I'm not going to be ridiculed. That's
2: right. Right. There's no fear of reprisal. You can raise your voice. Right. And if you think about it intuitively, that kind of makes sense. Like yeah. you can have the most diverse team in the world. And if everybody's afraid of their boss firing... I don't want to
1: get fired. I'm not going to say... Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So when you control for psychological safety on teams, high-performing teams outperform average by about... or diverse teams outperform by about 19%. And the least diverse teams underperform average by about 17%. Right. So huge, huge difference. What we see on the Humu side is uh, we do have a diversity inclusion product that kind of shapes and drives all this stuff, but embedded in our core product are things that drive psychological safety and voice. And um, so one of the things that you get as a side effect is more inclusion and innovation right. uh, along with what we do.
1: How do you get these, these really kind of, for lack of a better word, touchy-feely, r- human relational things to work better with AI?
2: So it um, feels
1: quite incongruous.
2: It is. It's actually really hard because, like I said before, you never want to replace people. Uh, for a bunch of ethical reasons and and cuz the computers just can't they can't deal with all the variables that the human yeah. brain's dealing with. So what we do, just for context is we take the guesswork out of management. So we tell everybody in an organization what's the one or two or three things they should be doing differently to have the maximum benefit in terms of happiness and inclusion and productivity and retention for that team for the whole company. The way we get them to do it is we first tell them Here's what we found. Here's what's going to have the biggest impact. But then the second thing we do is we use AI-driven nudges, and that's where some of the AI comes in. We actually figure out what's the smallest message or intervention you can give somebody. And it could be simple as an email saying, speak up in the first 10 minutes of a meeting because it's going to be easier. Right? Like if you're trying to drive voice or inclusion and you nudge somebody, we call them nudges, to just speak up a little earlier, it's way easier. Like, if you wait till the end of a meeting, there's a lot of pressure to say something smart, to get noticed, to edge your way in. If it's in the first five or ten minutes, you can say anything. You can say, like, oh, you know, weather's amazing today, and you'll be on the board, and it's easier to speak up. So these tiny emails or text messages or Slack or Yam or what have you are finally crafted and curated to be very personal, very, very accessible, very friendly. And, and people respond to them. Yeah, it's crazy. We thought... I thought I was wrong about this. I thought 10% of people would respond to them. We find it's between 61 and 83% of people take action on the nudges we send.
1: Based on these little emails be like, "Hey Danny, you're about to have this meeting with your editor. Compliment
2: his hair." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Whatever.
2: Yeah. Well, well, and a related one would be about gratitude, right? So, for example, this, works, this is one that works great in, uh, like, hourly environments or, yeah. or restaurants. There's a nudge, and we have thousands of these, uh, but one of them is basically, hey, Danny, if you notice a coworker doing something well today, why don't you thank them for it? By the way, bonus points if you do it in front of their boss. Now, you would only get that nudge if gratitude and an increase in gratitude is going to have the highest benefit for your team versus all the other million things you could be doing, right? Because you could also like help clean the kitchen. You could also like explain how decisions are made. You could also, you know, ask them their opinion about something. The gratitude nudge shows up and that's one of many. Only if that's going to have the biggest impact. But what it then tells you is, okay, today I'm going to do this one little thing. It turns out, so this is where the fish metaphor comes in. Like if you watch a school of fish, the whole thing's like pivoting and moving. Mm -hmm. Every fish is on its own. Yeah, yeah. But then a shark swims up, they all split. Then they all come back together. What we do for organizations is kind of every week you get more and more aligned. And we're not telling everyone what to do all the time. We're not forcing everyone to do the same thing. Everyone's got different issues, different challenges. But the whole organization gets aligned and performs better. And people are happier. So you're
1: effectively trying to make a school of fish. And how move as a school of fish effectively.
2: Yeah, Yeah. Except in the real world. It's fish and octopi and like, yeah. you know, it's like so that's what all I was these say, so things. So how do
1: you curate that? Because I am very different from my colleague who's uh-huh. different very from that person. Blah, 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 blah.
2: So two things happen. One is we do a lot of customization up front and studying to figure out like, what nudges are going to work in which company's culture, because every company's different. So a lot of organizations that try to solve people problems, they develop a methodology, they show up, and they go like, oh, this is going to work for Ford and for Walmart and yeah. for Taco Bell and for the bagel shop across the street. It might be better than nothing, but you've got a really good chance of actually doing some harm. When you're dealing with people, like if an environment is like massively unsafe psychologically, yeah. the worst thing you can do is tell people to stick their necks out. Because they're going to get their heads chopped off. Yeah. So we first understand, like, each company's culture. We pay a lot of attention to, like, national culture because that has a big impact. People in the U.K. express things very differently than people in the U.S. (laughs) Um,
1: Yes. Right? Yes, I do. Yes.
2: I mean, like, as human beings, we know this. When you try to build, like, a product or a service, you know... People try to make it one-size-fits-all. So we do a lot of customization up front.
1: So do you do that? You just kind of sit in the corner and observe like a a psychologist kind of?
2: Um, Less observation, although we do. Like, uh, There's a company, and this one's public, called Sweetgreen that we work with. We actually went and we had a bunch of our people work behind the line making salads for a day. So they showed up in the morning. They opened up. They chopped salads. They served and assembled at lunch. They cleaned up. They did a terrible job because... But we we got behind the jobs. But we actually have a team of, as you'd expect, people scientists. And we do a cultural ethnography to begin with. So there's a bunch of questions we ask about how decisions are made. We look for cultural markers. It's less sitting and watching people in the cafeteria and more um, just asking and interviewing a small set of people. And then also understanding, do you have a forced distribution performance rating system Mm. or do you not have one at all? Because all that will shape the nudges and shape how we interact with a company.
1: Because it does feel that most companies are quite analog when it comes to this stuff. It's kind of shooting in the dark.
2: Well, it's worse than that because what every large company has is they do like an employee survey and they say, oh, here's how people are feeling.
1: And you fill it out while rolling your eyes and just get through this as quickly as possible and this is nothing's going to change.
2: So most people actually do. So we've worked with companies where, uh, and we run in kind of six-month cycles where in the second cycle what people tell us actually gets worse. So we we like start, we nudge a little bit, some things get worse. And when we dug into it in the two cases where that's happened out of, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 cases, people have said, well, I was lying before because I just don't want management to like get in my business. I'm just going to say everything's fine. And the other way, the existing way of like measuring how employees are feeling is a disaster is... Companies typically sort it into, what do people like? What are they neutral on? What don't they like? And they focus on the stuff they don't like. Well, people aren't great at expressing what really is going to drive their performance. So things they don't like, like everyone complains about their compensation. I, as well as everyone else in the world, would like more money. But that's not really actionable. And... Typically, the underlying issues are not compensation. Often they are. But the bigger drivers of performance are things like, are decisions made in a fair way? Am I included in these decisions? Yeah. Do I know what's going on? Do I trust management? Do they believe in me? Do they trust me? And by focusing on the things people are unhappy with, you actually focus on the things that aren't going to have the biggest benefit for your business. And it's like uh, marketers talk about there's something called unmet need. Like nobody knew they needed an iPhone before Steve Jobs invented it. Yeah. Right? And now it's everywhere. A lot of the work environment is like that. So much of it is so bad that we need, like, the iPhone for management. And that's kind of what we provide.
1: Right. How do you get companies to buy into this? Because you've created a business around, again, this... I, it's kind of a squishy idea. And how difficult is it to actually create a business that's a sustainable business based on this kind of, like, we're going to help your people get along better and work better?
2: Uh, well, it can't just be squishy. So the outcome metrics we look at as a default, our retention and productivity. What we typically see is about a, in high turnover environments, about a 40% improvement in employee retention. So that's like retail, restaurants, hospitality, things like that. Um, and then in terms of productivity, where we have robust data, it's for highly structured jobs. So like call centers and manufacturing, we typically see about a 10 to 15% productivity improvement.
1: And this is from nudges and, yeah,
2: right. It, well, it's, it's focusing on what matters and taking the guesswork out of management, right? Instead of me on the shop floor in the call center walking around to the team going like, "Uh, I think these 50 people should do this today. We actually tell the manager, here's what your people really need from you. And we tell the people, here's what you can be doing to help your manager get better and you get better. And the combination of those, it turns out is really powerful.
1: I guess my last question, going back to Google, it's ranked every year as the best place to work. But this past year has been just horrendous for it in many ways they've had. Revolts, people walking out, demanding that they pull out of contracts. And there seems to be a lot of anger or people saying, you know, that there's institutional racism, sexism, et cetera. What's gone wrong? Is it a sense? Cent- I mean, I know you're not there anymore, but do you have a sense? Is it just bigness?
2: It's a little hard to say because while there's certainly a ton of things I could have done better and fought harder for while I was there, Things were in reasonable shape when I left. I mean, they, they're still number one to work for. They won it the year after I left, you know, a few months after I left. So I don't think it's bigness. I think it's a couple things. One is, um, as companies, well, maybe it is bigness. They focus more on pleasing the street and less about culture. Yeah. I think companies that do have strong cultures, when you have leadership changes, it's easy for them to take that for granted. So people come in and just kind of go like, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's all fine. Cultures are really fragile things. And they take maintenance and work. And then I think the third thing is there were a handful of leaders at the company who were really good at, at scale, having difficult conversations with people. I mean, I always think about Eric Schmidt explaining why Google pulled search out of China in 2008. right? And he stood in front of, you know, whatever, 20,000 people at the time and said, a reasonable person could say you should stay in China and provide search for the following reason, or you should get out for the following reason, right? You're either bringing... Freedom and information, some is better than nothing. Or you know, the counterargument is you don't want to participate in repression of people. Both of those are good, solid arguments. And he said, here's where we landed. And the effect of that was people could see both sides were considered. And there were some fabulous executives uh, who were great in very different ways. But Bill Coren, Alan Eustace, Jonathan Rosenberg, Patrick Pichette, Rachel Whetstone, a woman named Nancy Lee, who led diversity and is now head of HR at Lyme. They're not there. And I think that ability at scale to have that principled conversation is a really important thing if you're going to have a participatory culture.
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Laszlo for taking the time out of his day to sit down in the Humu fish tank and talk all things people. I have to say, bean bags are really cool in theory, but after about five minutes, it's actually not that cool. There's no bag support. Lumbar situation was. Struggling. But anyhow, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And I'll be back next week with another show. In the meantime, you can find me, of course, in the Sunday Times, which stop the presses. There's a sale going on right now. If you sign up, you get three months access for the price of one. So go to thetimes.co.uk slash sale and tell them Danny sent you. That is it for this week. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can also email me Danny.Fortson at Sunday-Times.co.uk and I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening. Books,
1: contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen